0: Hey everybody, welcome to The Average Dude Podcast. I am your host. My name is Daniel Allison. I am The Average Dude. I've got a great friend on the show today. His name is Steve Grant. And Steve is the author of a book, Don't Forget Me. And he is the founder of a foundation called the Chris and Kelly Hope Foundation. I'm going to keep this introduction short so we can get into listening. It's a little longer today today. So I hope you have time to listen to, to the full podcast. We're gonna get started. Enjoy. Steve, can you hear me? I hear you, man. Great, welcome to the Average Dude Podcast. I appreciate you joining me.
1: Well, that's great, I'm about as average as they get.
0: <laughs> well, you know, the, one of the reasons that I, that I started this podcast, I wanted to introduce the listeners some of the folks that I've met over the last couple of years, and I think I've met a lot of great people, you being one of them, I think you have a a very impactful story, I know it's impacted me, and so I wanted to bring you on and have you tell this story, and uh, uh, so that's what we're going to do today. Great, look forward to it, I appreciate it. Absolutely. So I remember, you know, I was looking back at my calendar, the way that we actually got introduced, it was through another networking connection of mine. Will May was the person. That's and right. he, he told me that, uh, you may be able to help me on, on a, uh, to get into an organization. And, uh, so that's how the relationship started. And then we decided about two and a half years ago, uh, to meet at the Cracker Barrel. That's right. And, I remember going into that, I knew that there was a story that you had to tell me, and this was the story of your family, your sons, and addiction, and that's basically what I knew about it, and I wanted to kind of start you down that path. I'm sure this is a story you've told many times, obviously, and we're going to get into everything, but... I remember that day wondering, I wonder, I wonder what this story is. Is this a story I've heard before? And you started telling me about Chris and that's, that's, that's where I would like to start. Sure. It's just telling the story of Chris and your family and how addiction has impacted your
1: life. Sure, well, I'll, I'll talk to you about Chris and preface it with uh, just the background a little bit. I, uh, I'm from Paramus, New Jersey, uh, came here on a little baseball scholarship to Furman University, uh, decided to stay, went in the financial services business, which I've been in for the last 40 years, and um, had, t- had two sons um, back in 19, uh, one was born in 1984, one was born in 1986, Chris and Kelly, and you know, fast forward, uh, they both died of accidental drug overdoses, uh, one at the age of 21 and one at the age of 24. Um, so we talked about Christopher's, our first one. Christopher's, my oldest son, my firstborn, uh, in 1984, uh, became a gifted athlete, uh, average student uh, in the classroom, but uh, high IQ, which is a characteristic of many, many folks who who are um, become addicted to drugs or alcohol. Uh, about 14 years old, I started to notice some some behavior issues. Uh, I'm not a wallflower when it comes to drinking. Uh, I am for drugs, uh, but I, I, I'm not a wallflower. i went to college. I understand. I've been around all this stuff. Um, but I didn't know I didn't know when it was uh, being held secret to me. Uh, if you know what I mean. It's uh, so one day a carpet cleaner came to our house and he looked he he did the carpets and I paid him, and he was a nice Spanish fellow, and he said, "Hey, sir." you know, you've got a lot of beer cans under these couches and under these beds. And I said, what do you mean beer cans? What are you talking about beer cans? So he showed them to me and I said, well, you know, I know they weren't mine. I'm not putting beer cans underneath the, the couches of the bed and I know my wife wasn't. Uh, so, uh, you know, next best, next best is Christopher and his friends. So that sort of started me at least with the wake-up call. And that was the wake-up call. And it, it, um... And-
0: and just to be clear here, Steve, it, up until that point, he was, he was active in sports. He was, you didn't see this coming.
1: No, had all kinds of friends. You know, those, this, this was an issue that we actually talked about because uh, I just finished, I just wrote a book, as you know, and I yep. talked about uh, my family history and his mother's family history, and there's alcohol splashed all over it. So I was always telling the boys that someday you're going to like something. And, you know, one thing, it's not legal till you're 21. And two, uh, it's, may not be the, it, you may like it to, to an extent that would be overwhelming to you right. and, har- and harmful. And, and that we did. It wasn't like every conversation, but it was fairly regularly. Uh, and it usually came after I picked him up at his friends or picked up Kelly at their friends. And we'd start talking about what they did and everything like that yeah so, but but as as the as as christopher grew um he not only became addicted to drugs um uh, and alcohol um you know it, it changed his whole life and it changed the whole life of our family uh so uh, how i realized this well one is when this beer can started but the, the 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 real the real clincher was one night i was home at home and i was reading and I typically do that. And I was a den by myself. And Christopher came down. He was in his pajamas. He was 14 and a half, 15 years old. And he said, Dad, I don't want to be a, I don't want to um, be a, you know what, a, an F up. Yeah. Right? And yeah. And I said, Well, why would you say that, Christopher? You know, here he was, the only freshman in the basketball team at Christchurch, the only freshman in the soccer team, had all kinds of friends. Um, struggled in school, though. Um, and I said, you know, he would not tell me what he was telling, what he wanted to tell me. But he, all he would say was, I don't want to be an F up. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of knew that was, there was something wrong, certainly. But I, you know, just kind of said, go, you know, go back to bed. We talked about it, of course. So about two weeks later, he came downstairs again, and it was the same setting. I was reading a book and he said, dad, you're my only friend in this world. Mm. And when he said that, I, my, my hair in the back of my neck stood up and I said, you know, I'm flattered. But when I was 15, my father, he was still alive. uh, He's my best friend today, but he certainly wasn't my best friend when I was 14 or 15. Right. Yeah. Um, And so when he said that to me, uh, here's a guy, he had everything going for him. I mean, girls all over the place, friends all over the place, Mm -hmm. playing varsity sports. And he's got, and I'm his only friend in the world. Right. And so I had, I had, Daniel, I don't know if you knew this, but I had helped start the Suicide Crisis Hotline in Greenville. Okay. Several years before that. And I went through the, uh, the training to hear someone who's saying, who's thinking about ending their life possibly. And uh-huh. they don't tell you, I'm going to kill myself. But they say things like, you're my, only, you're my best friend in this world, dad. Right. Yeah. Or, or uh, hey, if I don't see you tomorrow, have a great day at work. Uh, or, you know, it's been nice knowing you, uh, Daniel. You know? right. So yeah. I heard those things. And, I, and when I heard that statement about me being his best friend, I said, I knew there was something wrong. Right. So the next day I took him by hook or crook. I took him to a, a psychiatrist that I heard was one of the better ones in Greenville for adolescence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, the guy was nice enough to see me on his lunch. And he got out of the room. He said, you know, this is a patient privilege thing. But all I'll tell you is that your son's life is being controlled by marijuana and alcohol. So that's how it kind of started.
0: Hmm. So, so just to kind of catch everyone up here, uh, this was this was a a blindside type situation, and the reason I keep going back to that. I, no, that's okay. You know, is is it's important to say that. You know, he, he's saying these things to you when everything's looking good. It's it's not like there was this early trajectory that was leading him down this path, and so this this sudden kind of um, uh, him realization from you, and you took action right away. You yes. know, you heard this, you took him to the psychiatrist, you wanted to start finding out because you saw this warning sign, coupled with the 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 beer cans, and so I know you. So, so tell us more about some of the other things that you tried as this, as this tale continues with,
1: with well, Christopher. So, so when, when, doctor, when, when, the, when the psychiatrist told me this, uh, you know, and I said, well, where do we go from here? So he started sending me things about going to rehab. And I said, you know, wow. I, I said, my 15-year-old son, I'm going to send to a rehab facility. Yeah. I was really naive to this, but I didn't know anybody who had sent their kids to rehab. Right. Uh, so I learned a lot of firsts actually through this whole process um, and it was eye-opening certainly um, but but Christopher became um, that classic and I say classic because I talk to a lot of parents at least weekly that when they describe their son or daughter they're describing my son. Right you, you've
0: seen I, I, something I wanted to touch on uh, too is the, the patterns and so after we tell this story i will just because you've been around it now for so many years through the foundation and 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 hearing folks stories you see these patterns and if we can identify the patterns then this may help people see the pattern themselves and see kind of where things are headed and what to look for uh what what was absolutely Absolutely. what what was christopher's uh impression or how did he feel about going to rehab? I think that's something I'd like to touch on too. Did, did he? Yeah. I know he went yeah. several times, in and out. Uh, was there some times that were better than others? Was he clean during rehab? How did that play out?
1: You know, he, he uh, we, we we finally convinced him. We did our own little intervention, or I did one night, and I said, "Christopher, you're going to rehab in Tennessee." I found a place in Tennessee. Um, That was for adolescents and you know, one thing is there's a lot of rehab facilities out there today. It's a billion dollar or more business. Yeah, uh, rehab facilities in some form or fashion, a huge business and there's, there's a lot of bottom feeders in it. And there's a lot of very good programs. And there's a lot of programs that are not very, uh, very look good, or they they, they serve great food or, you know, you, you go out and get a tanning bed if you want, but there's a lot of programs that are very basic that are very good programs. And I've learned this over the last seven or eight years. But but Uh Christopher was all set to go to a place in Tennessee. And I told him, I said, Christopher, one of these days they're going to call me. Okay. And during that time that I had told him that he made an interesting comment because he said, okay, dad, I'll do that. Okay. He told all his friends he was going to boarding school. Okay. Which he ended up going to for a period of time also as a solution. But uh, this time, he was telling everybody. Cause he didn't want to tell everybody he was going to rehab. And I told him, you know, you tell your friends whatever you want to tell them. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the other thing about your parents have this stigma about having a son or daughter who have drug problems. Well, I didn't care what other people thought about wow. me a, about me as a parent. I was just worried about Christopher and helping him. So, uh, so he could tell them whatever he wanted to be. But, but uh, Daniel, he, he, um, the, the, the day came, and he went, but before he said that, I said, Christopher, this will be the best thing you ever did. And he said, you know, Dad, all I want to do is be like you or, and my uncle, meaning my brother, my twin brother, who's very successful yeah, uh, yeah. In, in what he does. He's, and he said, you, you put people together and you help people. And I said, you know, Christopher, and this is how what happens. You get conditioned. When, when you're 14 you go to the liquor store and the liquor store owner says, you're the only person, Cri- Christopher, that I sell a 14-year-old liquor to. And if you tell your parents about it, they're going to shut me down. And he has a picture on the counter of him and his kids, his family, and says, Christopher, I'll lose my wife and my kids, you know? Oh, wow. So as a condition of going to this rehab, Daniel, he says, Stad, you cannot do anything to that liquor store owner. I, don't, <laughs> I know how you are because uh, you, you're going to want to help a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. That is to me. You know, you're going to want to help a lot of people besides me but and helping them you know, close down that guy. Because I said, Christopher, he's not saying that just to you. He's saying that to any kid that wants to walk in there and buy, buy liquor at 14 years old or underage, right? Yeah. But this is how what happens. You get conditioned, and that's part of the thing. When you, when you fall in love with drugs or alcohol as an adolescent, it robs you of your adolescence. Well, I think it also says that Christopher had a
0: good, a good heart. His heart was in the right place. He didn't want to hurt this guy and his family. Oh, he had a wonderful
1: heart. It was going right down his street. You know, uh, he had a wonderful heart. And I, 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 I think about that often. You know, it's hard to tell people my story. And I don't tell it to everybody. Certainly, it's, you know, it's there. You can read about it. You can look at my website. But when I speak to friends and you're a friend, I always say, Chris was really a great kid. He had a great heart. And, you know, it's hard for people to understand, well, you know, he went to five rehabs, Steve. You know, he died of a drug overdose. I and mean, what kind of kid could he have been? Really. You know, but the truth was he was a very good kid. So he went off to Tennessee. We said goodbye to him for 90 days. It was very hard. Um, he called me everything in the in the book other than my name. Oh I mean letters over the first month. Uh, but then those month, those letters started getting better. Uh huh. You know, at the end of it, we looked like we had our son back. Okay. Yeah. And then we had to deal with uh, and you may not know this, Daniel, or not, but the recommendation always is you can't, you got to leave your friends and your habits uh-huh. where, you, where, you, where you came from, right? Right. You can't, go, you can't go back to those. So, one of the things I did was I asked my parents in Abbeville, South Carolina, to take care of Christopher for a little while. So, they did that. I knew they would do anything they could for him. Uh, but it was very stressful on them because eventually you got a target on your back. Uh, you're the kid who just came to town um eventually it's a I, I just came from rehab i was do, using marijuana and everything like that and selling it and they found them eventually of course he found them um and then so we were back there it lasted about a year and then i was you know this process went on daniel four times after that rehab to this to that yeah and on the way people said steve you got to send him away to, for a program for 18 months Uh You can't just keep sending them for 90 days, 90 days, 90 days. I never could come to grips with that. So when people ask me what I regret, if I regret anything, I said, I really don't have any regrets. Okay. Uh I do, I do some things differently, but I don't regret what I did. But the only thing I do if I did is I tried to take him to an 18 month program in Houston, Texas, uh, where he'd be there. It would be very expensive. It was $8,000 a month. And I didn't know where I was going to get $8,000 from. Yes. But I brought him out there. Daniel, and that's a great story. I brought him out there. These rehab facilities, if people don't know about, they're not, usually not in the center of town. They're usually out in the middle of nowhere. And mm-hmm. I said, a little bit of nowhere outside of Houston, Texas. Uh, I dropped them off. By every impression I got, they looked like they had four football players that were going to keep him there if he didn't want to stay. Yeah. Of course, when you, prior to 18, you can keep someone in a rehab facility right after 18 you, you can you're free to walk and when we talk about kelly a little bit we'll talk about that yeah um, but 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 chris long story short i drove back i got lost in the rental car finally got to the hotel room got into there a do- there was a knock on the door and it was christopher yeah. and christopher had run uh the two miles of this dirt road to the highway and hitchhiked and almost beat me home wow he said steve dad i'm not going there yeah. I said, I'm sorry, Christopher, I got one plane ticket home. Here's, here's a $20 bill, and you can either buy drugs uh, or you can use it to find some place to sleep. Uh, but I'm going home tomorrow. And he stayed on the streets in Houston for uh, a few months. Well, I, I know that was a tough decision.
0: And, and I know tough. By, by that point, you you had tried so much you are probably at your wits end and it's not like that's the first card you play but you start you're look, you're you're getting desperate and and also he's not really giving you a choice you you had to as people say uh you know
1: tough luck that, that's right so that and i i didn't want to buy into that because it's a that's a hard thing to do you know, absolutely. you, you got to walk in someone's shoes to understand it
0: yeah so i know that was a tough call now I, I want to get to Kelly too. Tell yeah. us how, how this. Tell us with, with Christopher how how things ended up. Unfortunately.
1: Well, unfortunately, uh, Christopher, we had we did the five rehabs. I did a boarding school stint, and um, Christopher continued to use. And I realized I had done everything I could. He had gone to jail. Everything that could have happened happened. Almost went bankrupt. My first marriage in twenty five years went down to two. Um, you know, probably had a great deal of effect on his brother. All the things that you read about, you hear about that I didn't think were going to happen, happened, and, uh, and ultimately found him dead one morning of an overdose of uh, cocaine and methadone. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, and, and it was not not that it was surprised to me. It wasn't a. Sur- I was. I knew that if he didn't stop, he was going to die. Yeah. And I knew I'd done everything I could do. I didn't want him to die, certainly, but it wasn't unexpected, if you know what I mean, Daniel i do uh, I certainly grieve for him every day, but um, it was an expectation um, and that's where it got to
0: yeah and and this his his passing as you say there it wasn't there was collateral damage ripple effect with his addiction and the, the way that it impacted everybody in the family it It really changed a lot so so let's let's transition over to Kelly. I know that you said that. There had to be some impact with with Chris and, and watching his brother and, and everything that happened there. Uh,
1: what 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 can you tell us about Kelly? Yeah, Kelly was a, a, just a model kid, a model student, a gifted musician, played the drums. Was not athletically inclined, um, and but just a just a really a wonderful kid and. What I realized after Christopher died, he was in college in Birmingham, and he came home, for, obviously, for his funeral. And one of, the, one of the things I do regret is I sent him back right after the funeral back to school. Now, he, didn't go, he didn't go back uh, reluctantly. He just went back. But uh, later on, he kind of harbored some ill will that I said I had sent him back. Yeah. He didn't say he didn't want to go back. And I said, let's get back on the horse and continue our lives, you know. It's going to be hard, but let's do it. And that's, I guess, that's my that was that was my attitude about it. Um, I learned later on that that was probably not a great move. But, but you you felt like, I mean, in your defense here, you felt
0: like maybe you had there was time that you felt almost kind of wasted, even though it was in an effort to save your son. At the end of the day, that time is gone, and there were several years here where you were trying to save Chris Christopher. So. I can understand saying that. I, I know that's tough looking back now. So
1: with, with Kelly, uh, his, how did, how did this proceed? How so, did this- so he went back to school in Birmingham and you know, here's a kid that we, I basically neglected for the last seven years, mm-hmm. um, you know, because my ex-wife, their mother took, took care of Kelly, it seemed like all the time. I actually was in Abbeville with Chris for three or four nights a week and this is seven years going on here, worrying about Christopher. And here's this poor kid that I'm not worried about as much. Um, so, so he stayed in school. He got home that summer. He said, Dad, I really don't want to go back to Birmingham. He spent two years down there in school. He went to Greenville Tech for about six months, and then he transferred to College of Charleston. And when he transferred to College of Charleston, he met a friend there who he knew at St. Mary's School growing up, and they started a band. And the band got to be very successful. It actually signed a record deal. And long story short, I was helping finance the band, but music, the music industry in general is, is a topic that I knew nothing about. Uh, so I didn't know how it worked or anything, but I supported Kelly financially and, and the band financially to do it. And they ended up going to South by Southwest in, in Austin, Texas, which I understand is a big music venue. And it's really kind of an honor to be invited. So they played there. These are four guys, no money, driving, you know, 24 hours at a time, um, sleeping on the side of the road. And Kelly said, when we got back to Charleston after Austin, um, I passed out in the parking lot. Um, And how I found out about this is I got a bill from an emergency room physician at a hospital in Charleston for his emergency room visit. So I called him. I said, Kelly, what what is this about an emergency room visit that you haven't paid for? Or I have to pay for And he said, he said, oh, Dad, you remember that night I, we came home from Austin, Texas and from South by Southwest? He said it was 100 degrees. I was beat. I passed out in the parking lot, and my friends brought me over to, to the hospital. Now, yeah, very plausible, right? I knew what they were mm-hmm. going through. I said, well, why don't you have your uh, insurance card? Because he was covered by me. He said, oh, you know, I left my wallet. I didn't, I see, he said, I was there that night. They let me go in the next morning, and that was it. I said, OK, so I didn't, you know, really didn't bother me. other than you know, um, so I filed the claim and took care of that stuff. But about two or three months later in June of that year of 2010, one of the band members <clears throat> called me and he's they said, Steve, that was not a passing out in the parking lot. That was a heroin overdose. Mm. And of course, my world got rocked. Um, yeah, I knew Chris, I knew Kelly used a little marijuana here and there, drank beer. You know, we say normal kids. Well, you know, uh, for whatever that means, you know. This, he, was a,
0: this was another level all of a sudden.
1: Yeah, this is, pre- yeah, he fast-tracked. You know, Christopher never did anything to my knowledge intravenously, okay? So here's the kid that does, goes from A to Z. And and his friends told me later afterwards that it was amazing how he fast-tracked from whatever they do initially to, to have heroin, whether it's snorted or whatever. Uh, to using something intravenous. Now, keep in mind, Christopher was not was fearless, but he seemed like a chicken. Kelly acted like a tough guy, but he was a chicken. Yeah. And for him to put a needle in his arm, I to this day I still say, wow, you know, yeah. I mean, that still amazes me. So yeah. that night, that night instead of passing out in the parking lot, that was an overdose, and some girl had given him heroin, and actually she shot him up. And the thing was, Kelly went from A to Z in terms of amount to use very Mm -hmm. quickly. And so he got, what happens is you get on a certain level that you have to maintain. And that level slowly but even gets higher and higher. Uh, And that's where you ultimately end up dead. So um, when I found out that that was actually a heroin overdose, I called Kelly. And it was the end of the school year anyway. I went down and got him. He, he again we had a huge argument this is where he brought up you should have never sent me back to college with christopher the whole nine yards yeah you know we talked for that three and a half hour trip uh, in some ways seemed like 10 hours in other things seemed like 10 minutes yeah uh, but he he uh uh he stayed with me that summer and i drug tested him every other day because heroin kind of goes in your body and out of your body fairly quickly mm. i knew he was using some other things marijuana uh, maybe an antidepressant that was this, you know, a, 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 a class one, whatever drug. Yeah, and, uh, but but uh, he wasn't using heroin, uh, which they said is a miraculous thing, because uh, it's very, very attractive. I understand. Uh, yeah. Attraction is overwhelming. I understand. So, so uh, he went back to school. But, but the deal was, hey, guys in the band, the only people that knew were the band members. I didn't tell his mother. I didn't tell anyone that he had had a heroin overdose. Right. Really. I, I might have told my parents. Um, you, you tell people that, you, that, you, uh, that genuinely care about you, you know? Yes. So, um, so Kelly went back. I said to the band members, look, if he uses it again, I want to know. Because Kelly and I had a deal that he was going to go to rehab. Now, keep in mind, Kelly was 21 when this was – Kelly was 24 years old when this was going on. OK, he had turned 24 in May and for me to send him a rehab, I know he can walk. So I'm looking at it from my past and said, I spent a six figure sum of money on Christopher uh, in rehabs uh, and none of them worked. And, yeah, and rehabs yeah. in general have a poor batting average. Even the yeah. best even the best ones have a poor batting average. Yeah. Uh, th- um, so so with that, with that said, he ended up using He ended up calling me. I went and got him brought him home. Um, he was three hours short, we thought, uh, although College of Charleston later on gave him his degree posthumously um, after he died uh, because they, re- they recalculated it and they take that seriously actually. And they called me one day out of blue and said, can you come down here and get Kelly's diploma? We wanna have a little ceremony for him. Oh which wow. Carried, which was really, you know, very nice. Absolutely. Uh, but anyway, He came home, he got set up in an apartment. He, he was getting a job. And we always watched uh, HBO movies together at night on Sunday night or different shows like Mad Men we would watch on Sunday nights. Yeah. So Sunday came around and I didn't hear from him and I was calling him. And one thing about my sons, they always called me back or they texted me back, but it was not hearing a thing from him all day. So I started to get a little worried closer to the end of the day. So I drove over to his house and there I saw his car in the driveway and I looked at the door and the door was bolted from the inside, so he had to be in there. Yeah, uh, and I said, holy crow, you know, what's going on? So I broke the window of the house, climbed in the house, and then I, long story short, found him in a you know, fetal position with a, a band on his arm and, and dead. Oh. And, um, you know, was, Christopher was like he was sleeping. Kelly was gruesome. You know, he, he had vomit coming out of his mouth. He obviously died in a struggle. Um, and, and what happens is you don't go, he hadn't used, the coroner said he had one needle mark in his body and somebody had sent him heroin 30 days before and it stayed in his house. Um, and yet, you know, that's like having alcohol in the cabinet and you're not supposed to use it
0: Yeah. It's very
1: hard. So he was trying his best not to do it. Um, he was a stubborn kid. He was trying his best not to do it. Uh, he called a girl that night and said, one of his friends, Anna, and said, Anna, I'm feeling a little Jonesy. You have some
0: suboxone,
1: nah, well. and, and I said, "I don't know what suboxone is, Kelly. What do you need subox? What is that? You know?" Now he yeah. had called me and said, "Dad, I'm feeling a little jonesy. I need some suboxone." I would have figured it out. I knew exactly what he was talking about. Not yeah. from my own experience. I just knew by that point what what would the dangers were. Right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so that was it. You know, he was trying. It. He was trying to. So I found him that way, and you know that that, that was it. And that that hurt that hurt more than Christopher only because it was a gut punch and yeah and and just didn't it just surprised me when you go when you get to a certain level of those drugs especially heroin you don't go back to the beginning and start you go back to where you ended right and and when you ended and if you've been off it for quite a period of time which he was um, it went straight to his heart and killed him really is was my understanding
0: yeah, and that, that one, like you say, you, with Christopher, it, it was, the writing was on the wall a little bit more, even though oh, absolutely. Kelly was having his issues, this was still a shot. You didn't see that one coming as much. So take me now, I want to I talk uh, about the decision to, so everybody, I heard this story, and I, I think everyone would be thinking, how do you. How do you go on? You know, how, how are you able to handle this on a day to day basis? I know that you decided to start a foundation, Chris uh, and Kelly Hope Foundation. T- tell that story of how that transpired, if you don't mind.
1: So, so and thank you. So, Chris so and Kelly were both both dead. Um, after Christopher died, I had no inclination about helping anybody or starting a foundation. And I'm a very helpful person. Yeah. Um, and I was concentrating on Kelly and myself and us healing. And um, I had some struggles in the middle of that too, and uh, but but when Kelly died, about two weeks after that, um, two guys had come to Greenville who were now internationally known public speakers, John O'Leary and Ben Newman from St. Yeah. Louis, and they they um, they came to Greenville. I didn't know them; they didn't know me. And the office office manager in Greenville said, "Steve, I'd like you to go to this boot camp for three days. Uh, I need a little gray hair there." So, so I went uh, I went rather reluctantly because I, you know, I haven't been in, the biz- in this business for many, many years. I, I viewed it as another meeting that I was going to hear how to be a better business person or how to sell more insurance, uh, things like that. Right. I, really wasn't, ready, I really wasn't up to hearing that two weeks after my second son died. Yes. I went, but I went. I'm a team player. And um, lo and behold, we got there. was the Chamber of Commerce. And there's about 60 people in the room. And I really didn't know many of them. And again, I didn't know the speakers and they said, first, they started with the God word, which, you know, I kind of in, in a regular meeting and business setting, you don't usually hear that. Mm-hmm. Was in, that kind of impressed me. And then they said, we're not here to help you sell more insurance the next three days. We're here to help you figure out what your legacy is going to be when you leave this life. Yeah. So I perked up. I said, wow, this is kind of interesting. You know, what's this all about? Mm-hmm. Right. So they went, then they go around the room. And they said, we want to hear what you think it is now and in three days, let's see if it's changed. Mm. Well, a lot of people never gave it any thought. I never gave it any thought. And what came out of my mouth that morning, I never had one thought of before there. It, it yeah. still amazes me this day. And it had, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was certainly divine intervention. They yeah. got to me and I stood up and I said, I'd like to do everything I can to help adolescents and young adults who struggle with alcohol um, addiction and depression yeah and they said well why would you want to do that steve and i said well because i've just lost my second son to a drug overdose and i lost my first son five years ago yeah they, of course it got real silent <laughs> you know, right. nobody, nobody knew the story and yeah. uh they even said let's take a break uh,
0: right, right now.
1: but those guys have remained very close friends and they you know since we since i've written a book they've been very helpful with it but that's how chris and kelly's hope got started Uh, I sort of drew a line in the sand that day. Why I said it to this day, I don't know. Um, Like I said, it was divine intervention that that came out of my mouth because I had no inclination of starting a foundation. But a year later, we got it off the ground. The community foundation in Greenville helped me with it. And, uh, you know, after eight years of doing this, we've helped about 150 organizations. Uh, They have to be a 501c3 like we are. Um, And we, we helped, mostly obviously people that uh, organizations that have something to do with adolescent and young adult addiction. But we also help things like Junior Achievement, uh, Boy Scouts of America, YMCA, um, you know, any kind of youth thing that has something to do with healthy activities. Because so much of this is two families, two the husband and wife working, the kids get home at school at four o'clock, then the parents aren't home till 6.30. And I always called that hour, the 3.30 to 6.30 was when all the, when everything went down. Yeah. So let's support some of these organizations that take care of that time frame. I like that. Right. So, so that's, that's how Kristen Kelly's Hope works. And uh, we rely very heavily on individual investors and uh, individual donors. And mm-hmm. we have a golf tournament each year. Um, and, uh, you know, we've just written a book that's done very, very well up until the COVID hit, but it'll Absolutely. continue. And, uh, you know, the problem with the COVID and some other issues that our world is facing today, we've kind of forgotten about um, suicide, which is way up. My kids didn't commit suicide, but the suicide rate's way up now, again. Yeah. Overdose (laughs) rates is way up again. The people that are relapsing, that are in recovery are not doing anything. So what do they do? They drink again. Absolutely. They use use drugs again. And one of these days, we're gonna have to get back to figuring out, well, why did 72,000 people die last year of overdoses? Yeah, 72,000. 72,000.
0: Wow. Let I've got a, I've got a couple of questions here for you. If you've been around and and seen a lot of patterns and this sort of thing, what what can families I guess number one look for, but what what can they Let let me ask it this way. What what if 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 Chris and Kelly, what would've been their outcome had they been able to get over this addiction? What what kind of life could they have? led in other words if they were able to beat addiction what 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 do where do you see them today if that was the case
1: i oh, want to give hope i think they'd be doing well i think one of them would probably be working with me um kelly didn't want to work in a job that had people and i told that kind of narrowed the focus a little bit uh, but but uh but uh, he had done fine Uh, and you know, and, and I'll tell you the truth, not talking about my kids, but I do know kids who have overcome this and I do know young adults who are now doing very, very well. And you know, those kids, I never, whenever I see them, because Christopher had a lot of friends, Kelly had a lot of friends and some of them, I'm going to see one tomorrow that's struggling today. He's 35 years old and he's got an alcohol problem and his parents say, we got to get him to rehab. Right. That's one of Kelly's friends. You know, so, so, uh. Um when I see someone that's that's succeeded, mm. I, I mean, I put my arm around that young man that I know him and I said, Look, you're my hero, because yeah. I know how I know how hard this is. Yeah, it, it, it's a bear. It's Absolutely. a bear. Absolutely. We support, we support uh, campus recovery programs, 110 colleges across the country, you know, many of them. Um, they, they have a program where you can go if you're addicted. Uh, as an adolescent, you still want to go to college you're there, you're a freshman, you're kind of sequestered with a group of people in a campus recovery program, all sharing that same thing of, I'm an addiction. Imagine being an addiction at Ohio State, uh, and you're a freshman, you know, and you can't drink, and you can't do anything, right, Uh, like all the other kids are doing. I mean, it would be tremendous pressure. So Ohio State has a great campus recovery program. We support those programs. That's, that's
0: great. I'm, uh, I'm, at, like you say, that's, that's divine intervention for the timing to be that close for something that wasn't on your mind and then it, for it to give you this idea and then for you to take it as far as you've taken it, to get the book done. That's that's, uh, that's amazing. I mean, and, and I think that it's the, the only way to handle this in the end. Wouldn't you agree?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of people, I talk to a lot of people that have lost kids. Yeah. Um, so many that I, you know, I can't count. You know, when Christopher died, I didn't know anybody who died of a drug overdose. Uh, when Kelly died, I only knew his brother had died of a drug overdose. Now, today, I can tell you, uh, you know, I could probably name 50 kids or look up 50 kids. A lot of times we'll see somebody, if we know them, we'll make it to Chris and Kelly so we'll make a donation to the charity that they chose. Uh, but I know these kids. Some of them I know very personally. And it destroys yeah. me. Uh, but it's, but that's where we are. yeah. So you, let, you touched on something earlier, Daniel, that I want to talk about it just a tiny bit. Absolutely. You're talking about families, okay? Yeah. And maybe why does this happen? Right. Okay? And when a family calls me, I always say this to them, and I think you know this: the, the your young man or your young daughter, and quite frankly, nine out of ten times it's a boy, it's the male. Okay. okay. But girls do die of drug overdoses. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, don't want to eliminate that from a a boy or a girl standpoint, but when they tell me about their their son or daughter i want to listen to them because their story is unique to their family but what is very interesting is their behavior is very consistent with everybody else who goes down that path yes you know yeah you you spend the night out you're gone for a couple of days you're you're doing poorly in school all of a sudden right yes you quit the basketball team you know everything's changed in your life and that's because uh, when people call me and they sometimes they say, I found, found marijuana in my son's pocket when I was getting his clothes ready for the laundry. He's got a drug problem. I say, yeah, how do you know he has a drug problem? He might not have a drug problem. He might have just tried marijuana for the first time and he's experimenting. Like they say, 30, you know, 50% of the kids in high school do. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe more than 50%. So, so sometimes I'll say, is it controlling his life? Is it making decisions for him? Because that's when, because parents say, "Well, how do you know, Steve?" I said, "If he starts making decisions that are in favor of drugs over his homework, or over being being at work, or, or his, his his job after school, or going to church, wherever, right? When it starts making decisions for you, that's when you know there's a problem."
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's that's great advice, and, and looking for those signs and. Let, let me ask you this, if you could speak to someone that maybe has, at whatever age that may be listening, that has an addiction issue right now, what, 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 would you, what can you offer them as advice based on your experience and being around this so much? What, what would you say? It's a great
1: question, and um, it, it varies a little bit with, with the person's age, certainly. Uh, young adults who get involved with drugs and alcohol after their after their adolescence, have a better chance of recovering. Um, statistically, if you use drugs and alcohol, I always ask people, what do you think your son or daughter's age of first use was? And they'll they say 12, 13, 15. Uh, and I say, oh, wow. Because you know, I know that statistically, if you use drugs and alcohol as an adolescent, or that's when you began, you'd have a significantly tougher time quitting this thing for the rest of your life, frankly. Wow. There's a statistic out there, people go to rehab six or seven times before they find sobriety. Um, I help people go to recoveries. Uh, We help people go to recoveries and pay their first month when they go to a not-for-profit recovery. And a lot of times it's these folks who, they're 35, 40 years old, 25 years old, they've pissed off all their relatives, they're out of money, they have no insurance, they scraped all the plastic, they've called all the relatives and friends, Yeah. Yeah and they, they end up someplace and somebody will eventually call me and say, hey, Steve, can you scholarship this person to any length recovery in Sumter, South Carolina or to the Harmony House in Sunset Beach, North Carolina? You know, right. So that's, that's what I do because I can't help people who are going to something for 30, with $30,000 a month. I wish I could, but I can't. Right, yeah. But the fact is you don't have to go someplace that charges $30,000 a month, okay? Yeah, so going back to your question which is a good one, the advice I would give parents when they do suspect this is happening, you got to be in constant communication with them. You've got to be in constant communication and you can't overreact, but you certainly have to be aggressive. And I did things like, okay guys, if you're coming on come come over here to our house, you're going to have to leave your bags downstairs. Okay. Yeah. If you go up to Christopher's room or Kelly's room and you're in their bedroom and you're on the internet, you got to leave the door open. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so eventually it, it was funny. Nobody wants to stay at the Grant's house anymore. Right. Right. Uh, and then when Christopher and Kelly would come to me and say, dad, I'm going to spend the night over so-and-so's house. And if I don't know that person, I didn't really either I knew him or not. Hey, have that person's mother call me. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, okay. So believe it or not, nine times out of 10, Either the place he was staying at was cha- had changed, right? Or no mother ever called me and he came home, right? Yeah. So there's some, there's some little things you can do without being a detective 100, 107 to, to kind of, I know the tricks they play.
0: Absolutely. And you know, they can be pretty doggone uh, crafty,
1: huh? <laughs> oh, well, one, you know, Christopher, one of the things in the book I, I tell his story, I'll tell this quickly. Christopher used to call me because he knew I'd come home about 5 o'clock every night, you know, from work. Yeah. I worked downtown and I, was, I lived in Chanticleer at the time, so it was a five-minute drive, eight-minute drive. Hey, Dad, this is Chris. I said, hey, Chris, what's going on? He said, hey, will you do me a favor? Are you on the way home? And I'll say, yeah. And he said, you, can you run by so-and-so's house? He's got a CD in his mailbox that he wants, that I want. Would you mind going to get that on the way home? Mm-hmm. Sure, I'll go get it, right? Well, this, this, was, this was very uh, common, not every day. But once a week, twice a week, I'd be picking up something. Where he'd say homework. That, you know, he his buddy knew. What they were saying was, I need to get my dad away from here for another 20 minutes. Ah, uh, Right? Because something's, something's going down at the house. Yeah. Especially he starts selling. And, you know, you get in that world of selling, and there's some guy like you or me who doesn't use marijuana or doesn't sell marijuana, but he's got a business to run. And that business is Chris Grant's got to get make sure he both sees as many friends as he can and get their money and bring it back to him. Right. It's a business. Then we had our house toilet papered several times had our windows broken in our cars and it was all related to Christopher's, Christopher was in trouble. You know, he was, he was behind, you know, yeah. the, the methadone, he, the methadone he took that night, uh, he owed someone a lot of money for the night he died.
0: Wow. Goodness.
1: So, so, um, you know, it's, you gotta be, you gotta be aggressive. Uh, there's a lot of things you got to do that, that you, that you characteristically wouldn't do. And, but that book has a lot of those stories in there and they're really meant not to tell a great story, but they're really meant to say, Hey, these are normal kids, right? These are kids who are uh, normal. Parents are parents are normal. Uh, they had everything going for them, but they, they, they got, especially in Christopher's case, Kelly and Christopher, the, the reason people like my story or, you know, hear it and listen to us because it is we, they took two separate paths yeah, had the same result. Kelly was okay. addicted for eight months. Chris was addicted for eight years, but had the same, same outcome. Wow. And and, wow. Uh, and, and, and that's just an important thing to know that it doesn't take much to get off track. Absolutely. And the name of the, I just want to reiterate
0: the name. I'm going to do all of this and, and put it in, in the links where, where I post this uh, uh, podcast so i appreciate you coming on but it's chris and kelly's hope foundation and that's chris and kelly uh hope.org or what is the url www.chriskellyhope.org. yes and and then the name
1: of the book is don't forget me don't forget me that's right And yeah. the wall yeah. street journal the wall street journal did two very good articles on it unsolicited to me back in february i uh, just got a, a, a great article in guidepost magazine so it's got a lot of interest and it's doing well. And actually it was, Amazon, when it came out in February, it was Amazon's number one seller in the drug and alcohol category for about a month. Well,
0: that's, that's fantastic. And yeah. I know in that book, I've read the book. It, you're, very, you're very honest. I think it's a fantastic book for any parent with kids or anyone that uh, knows someone suffering from addiction to read it because like you say, you can really see a lot of the patterns and maybe you see this pattern going on in your own life and with your own family and, and can do something about it. Steve, I appreciate you joining me on, on The Average Dude. This is a little different. I was nervous about this interview only because I'm usually talking about motivation and I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily a, a serious person, but you've been a great friend to have and, and the story was impactful for me. And so that's part of the reason I wanted to do this type of
1: podcast is to introduce people that I knew to, to more people. Well, I didn't know the uh, title of this is Average Guy till you started, but I am an average guy. <laughs> and, uh, and so it was very appropriate. And I really appreciate your time and your interest.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again for coming on and we'll talk to you soon. See It's Cracker Barrel. That sounds great. See you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Average Dude Podcast. If you're still listening, hey, I've got some great news. I'm going to have some fantastic guests on the podcast over the next couple of weeks. So please make sure you stay tuned. Thanks again to Mr. Steve Grant. I'm going to put all of his contact information in the summary page of this uh, podcast. So make sure you check out his website check out his book, share it with someone that you know that might be suffering from addiction or has a loved one that's suffering from addiction. And uh, let's spread the word of, of what he's trying to do with his foundation. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. Let's roll.